Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. This week, we enter into week two of our Idols, Icons, and Tech series. But before we get there, wanted to give you a few updates and reminders in the life of our community. The first is that we're having two events in June to create safe spaces for our LGBTQ community members. The first is coming up this Tuesday at Studebaker 112 here in South Bend at 7 p.m. This is a night for anyone looking to learn more about how to be an ally or advocate for LGBTQ people. We'll hear from a panel of LGBTQ people and allies in the South Bend City Church family, and you'll have a chance to submit the questions for them. Just a reminder, if you're looking to help sort through questions surrounding the Bible and theology related to LGBTQ identity and inclusion, while these are like really important questions, we encourage you to explore the resources on our FAQ page. This night is intended specifically for other types of questions that come from walking with LGBTQ people and learning how to love well. We would love for you to join us. If you've got kiddos under the age of third grade, so birth through second grade, we will have childcare available. We just need you to go ahead and register and let us know how many kids and what their ages are. And as you register, you also have the opportunity to submit questions for the panel. And then on Tuesday, June 27th, we're hosting a table night for our LGBTQ community members. So if you identify as LGBT or Q, you can come enjoy this time as a safe space for you and to share a meal and connect with your fellow SBCC family. Once again, it's great for you to let us know to expect you, and that's also how you get the location information for this table. So go ahead and RSVP in the show notes below. One more date to keep in front of you is July 2nd. On July 2nd, here in South Bend, we will not be meeting at Studebaker 112. We won't have gatherings at our normal spot. We'll be meeting at Four Winds Field for our second annual summer picnic. Uh, There will be more information coming your way for that, but just wanted to give you a save the date for that. As always, if you consider yourself to be a part of the South Bend City Church community, you can give. You can do that by going to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. That link is also in the show notes below. And it's through your generosity that we're able to do what we do, and it's not lost on us that we couldn't do it without you. So thank you for the ways in which you give. All right, like I said, week two of Idols, Icons, and Tech. Many of us are aware that our increasing exposure to social media and other digital entertainment isn't entirely good for us. So this weekend, we explored a spiritual perspective on why that may be the case, and we offered a challenge for our practice this week. All right, I know it was challenging for me. I'm sure it will be for you. Let's jump in with Jason and the rest of our community now. Uh, I'm Jason. I'll also say, if I've not met you, I'd love to connect with you after the gathering and get to know you a bit. A little while ago, I heard something uh, about one of the little ones in my life who calls me Uncle Jay, and it broke my heart and made me want to fight someone. The little one I'm referring to is eight-year-old Haven, and she's very, very precious to me. And I heard from her parents that she was having a bad day, and they inquired about it. They sensed her mood was down, and she was feeling insecure, and they asked her what was going on. And eventually, in a moment of honesty, she said, I don't feel pretty. Yeah, I know, right? You want to fight someone too now, don't you? (laughs) I understand that, like, growing up, we all wrestle with feelings like that, and that's a normal part of any era of human existence. But her parents dug in a little bit further, and what became clear is that A lot of that was coming specifically from experiences that she was having online. Uh, Between YouTube and even some early social media, this was driving some of the feelings that she was having. Now, you should know her parents are really mindful about screen time and social media with their kids. They have very thoughtful protocols for these things, and they're pretty limited about the exposure that they get. 
but they also want their kids to be in the real world and to connect with their friends, and so they also have some screen time. And yet, even with that limited screen time, this effect comes about. And in that moment, there was one little example of something we're learning that is dramatically happening uh, across our society. Uh, in the last couple of decades, as devices have become more and more um, ubiquitous, they're everywhere in our lives, TVs and computers and iPads and smartphones, and then as apps have been developed and social media platforms have grown, we've been learning more and more that these things are not good for us in a lot of ways. Uh, in fact, we've got lots and lots of data that shows uh, an observable statistical increased risk of depression, anxiety, loneliness, self-harm, and even suicidality that correlates to the more time we spend on devices and especially on social media platforms. Now, I know that might sound kind of dark and a heavy way to start. We're going to work this out, don't worry. Um, but I want to name that because it's an important thing for us to hear today as we think about uh, technology and our relationship to it. Uh, what I just told you about this like, very well-observed uh, data about the effect that these devices are having on us, this might explain why tech is one of the few industries whose executives are known for explicitly not dog-fooding. Anybody know what dog-fooding is? This term comes about from a specific instance, and then it's become a term in business communities. The specific instance is that an executive of the Cal Can Dog Food Company in the 70s or the 80s was known for showing up at shareholder meetings, eating the dog food that his company produced. The point was, he's walking around with the shareholders and he's demonstrating to them, I believe in this product, I trust the health and safety of this product so much that even though it's made for dogs, I'm going to eat it right here. By the way, this has been verified journalistically, this actually happened. And since that time, dog fooding has become sort of a, a trope among executives. When you lead a company that creates a product, you dog food it to demonstrate to the world how much you believe in it, how much you trust it. And yet tech is one of the few industries where executives are known explicitly for not dog fooding. Uh, now, that, that uh, account right there, and then the next couple of things I'm going to tell you, I've gotten from an author named Adam Alter, who works on these issues. He tells the story of Steve Jobs being interviewed about the iPad. This is a tech journalist wanting to know where the idea for the iPad came about and what it was like to create this product category for people at a time when tablets weren't really a thing. And at the end of the interview, after doing all the substantive inquiry that he thought would matter for the article, he gives Steve Jobs what he thought would be kind of an easy softball question to wrap things up. And he says to Steve Jobs, hey, you've got teenagers at home. Do they just love the iPad? And Steve Jobs says, oh, no, I don't let them use it. He says, I don't let my kids on that thing. Are you crazy? I learned this from Adam Alter as well. In Silicon Valley, there's a school called the Waldorf School of the Peninsula. It's a private school uh, where something like 70 to 80% of the students come from the families of these tech executives. And I, I learned that much from Adam Alter, but then I went online and found the school myself and looked at their website. And on the school's website in Silicon Valley where tech executives send their kids, you'll read this. They have a philosophy of technology and media use in their school, and it says, this is quoting from the website. The lure of electronic entertainment negatively influences the emotional and physical development of children and adolescents and can detract from their capacity to create meaningful connection with others and the world around them. Therefore, they don't use any screens or electronic devices in their educational settings until eighth grade. In Silicon Valley, at a school 
that's filled with the kids of these tech executives. This is like, I was trying to think, like, what's, what's the metaphor? This is like if you found out that in the city of Rome, there was a private school whose students almost entirely come from families whose parents work at the Vatican, and you read on the website about the dangers of organized religion. Right? This is kind of absurd, but it's actually happening. I think a lot of these employees are painfully aware of what's happening with all this technology and what it's doing to us, but a lot of us aren't. Last week, we began this conversation about technology. I'm calling it um, Idols, Icons, and Tech, or Icons, Idols, and Tech. I don't remember which way it went. But we're talking about um, technology in all of its varied forms, but especially the way that it affects us the most right now, which has a lot to do with screens and personal devices and social media. We're talking about technology. And we're talking about this original human calling to bear the image of God in the world. And we're talking about the way that that can get lost in exercises of idolatry. Let me try to connect all of this. Last week we heard uh, that strange story from Genesis chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel. And if you were here last week, you heard a few of these observations. You heard, first of all, that in Genesis 1, when we are called to bear the image of God, that includes a calling to go out into the world and to make something of the world. We're called to fill the earth and to tend to it, to cultivate it in ways that create more and more flourishing. So the calling there is go and make something of the world. And then in Genesis 11, about the story of Babel, we read that they decided to stay and make something of themselves. That original calling to go and make something of the world, there's an inherent vulnerability in that creative act to leave behind the places that you've already created, to go out into the wild and create more. And there's a kind of otherness centering in that experience, right? That we go out there to make beautiful things for other people, for more and more diverse flourishing. And there at the Tower of Babel, we read that they decided to stay and make something of themselves. We also read that it's a story about technology. Because you read there that this tower is made possible by this brand new innovation in the history of humanity where instead of making things with stones, they made things with bricks. Which, believe it or not, back then is straight up a technological intervention, right? And then we read that for like a couple of thousand years, there's been an interpretive layer on top of that story that comes from both Jewish and Christian sources that says that this whole Babel enterprise was driven by a guy named Nimrod, Nimrod the king. And in one ancient source, a historian named Josephus, we read that Nimrod sort of engineers this whole endeavor to exploit the people's labor, to fool them into thinking that somehow they're being liberated and not realize that they're being enslaved. And all of a sudden, this strange, archaic story from a very long time ago sounds very relevant. A story about people whose own like, energy and attention is being drawn into a, an enterprise that they think is for their own safety and liberation, and they don't realize that in the effort, they are losing their calling. They're walking away from what it meant to be human in the best, fullest sense, and they don't realize it's really just benefiting Nimrod at the top of the org chart, right? Um, Babel's in Genesis 11, and then as you turn the pages in the Old Testament, you enter into the story of the Israelite people who themselves are enslaved in Egypt, and the empire-building project of the Egyptian pharaoh, and then they're liberated. And then when you read uh, books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those are those strange books in the Old Testament that have lots of regulations and instructions about sacrifice and like how to plant things in the fields and what your religious rituals ought to look like. And if you've ever read Leviticus or Deuteronomy, well done. Uh, you might have gotten a little lost. They're very strange. They're very archaic in some ways. But if you take a step back and you understand the experience of these people who had been enslaved in Egypt, 
And then you seem to, to get the notes from the text that suggest that God is interested in their liberation and in the recovery of their calling as human beings and bearers of the image of God. He wants to liberate them from Egypt's idolatry, and he wants to liberate them from their own. He wants them to be alive. That's, that's what the whole thing seems to be about. You were enslaved. I want you to be vigilant about your freedom. You lost the plot on who you were. I want you to be vigilant and holding on to it. And then at the end of all of that law giving, Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the end of the Torah, after all these strange, archaic rituals and regulations, we read the summary statement about what's been happening the whole time. This is Deuteronomy 30. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Now, if you could for a moment, like, strip away whatever religious experiences you've had with the Bible or any ways that you've been taught to think of those texts as referring to this sort of spiritual life that floats above the actual everyday physical experiences. If you could leave all that behind for a minute and remember what I just told you, that this is a text given to people who were actually enslaved in an actual empire, and God seems concerned that after God liberates them, they hold on to their freedom and they hold on to their vocation and they they remember who they are. And then at the end of all of that, he says, what I've set before you with all these strange instructions is life and death, flourishing and suffering, that that's the fork in the road that you face every day when you decide whether you're going to listen to all of this. That's all backdrop uh, for what Jesus says in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, and other places in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus gets asked this question in several places in the Gospels about, like, how do you interpret the law, or what's the most important from all those texts that we have in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Uh, In Matthew 22, the way the question is framed is, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, eternal life, the brain quickly goes toward like afterlife and spiritual realities floating above the physical everyday experiences that we're actually having, but that's not a great interpretation. It's not that Jesus isn't concerned about what happens after this moment in these bodies, but he's also concerned about what happens in this moment in these bodies, and he sees a connection between all of that. So to ask Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He might be saying, like, how do I make sure that I don't lose the plot? If it's true that what is set before us is life and death every day, blessings and curses, flourishing or suffering, if it's set before us every day and we have some choices to make about whether we will plant our lives in life or not, that that seems to be the heart of the question, which matters to me when I read the statistics about what's happening with the epidemic and mental health in our country. It matters to me when I see the rise in suicidality in our country. It matters to me when I see the effect that technology is having on us. It's not leading us toward life. Plain and simple. Now, we're going to say more in the next couple of weeks about all the good and redemptive and beautiful things about tech. That's really true. But right now, it's like painfully clear. Our kids are suffering. Our teenagers are suffering. Our adults are suffering. And tech is part of that. It's not leading us toward life. It's not helping us flourish. It's dragging us down in all sorts of ways. And Jesus has asked, like, what is life? How do do I plant my life in life? And this is his answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus is, is pulling that out of those old law codes from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything God has been doing for you to help you 
like set the course between life and death, between flourishing and suffering, hangs on these two commandments that Jesus lifts out of that same text that ends in Deuteronomy 30 with life and death. So let me see if I can connect all of this for us. Um, we have this ancient story about people who lose the plot on their own vocation in the world. That's Babel. Humans, you were, you were meant to make something beautiful of the world, and you were meant to flourish in that work. Instead, their lives get caught up, they get exploited, they get dragged into the empire's project, technology is a part of it, and before they, before they realize that they've lost the plot in who they are, and instead they've gotten wrapped up in something else that was smaller than they were meant for and isn't actually helping them, you fast forward, and then we have the story of these enslaved Israelites who themselves are wrapped up in the empire project of the Egyptian pharaoh. They're cogs in a machine, and then they're liberated, but they're giving the, these, these forks in the road, these warnings about the fact that now that I've liberated you, you've got to keep choosing life. You've got to keep choosing your own liberation. Jesus is asked about all of that, and he lifts from all of those texts this verse that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Other gospel texts also um, add strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as I've been reflecting on all these layers, what stands out to me is that Jesus seems to be speaking of a capacity to be fully present, which is one of the things we're most being robbed of with all of these technological tools. Let me see if I can keep making my case here. Heart, soul, mind, and even strength. Have you ever been with somebody, but you realize they weren't with you? You ever been with somebody, and maybe their body was physically there, but their mind was someplace else, and you could quite literally, you could tell, right, through body language, through energy, their body was there, but their mind wasn't, right? Or have you ever been with somebody, and they're there, body, strength, like physically they're present, and maybe mentally they're there. Maybe you're having a conversation. You can tell that their mind is working on the same things that you are working on, but emotionally there's absolutely no presence or connection. You ever been there? Don't think about your last date night. Don't do that. That's not going to help right now. <laughs> you know we have this capacity to be fragmented, to not be fully present for some part of ourselves to show up and some other part of ourselves to not show up. Uh, think about like your last Zoom call. They might have been there all mind and all heart, and they might have even been there with spirit, but their body wasn't in the room. And I'm not saying Zoom is bad, and I'm really thankful for these technologies, but it is different to be present in the body with somebody else than to not be present in the body. And Jesus gathers up this sort of strange, ancient summary of the fullness of a human being. Heart, soul, mind, and even strength, the fullness of a human being. And he says the good life, the eternal life, the liberated life, the free life, the thing that entire law code was about when it was written for people who were in danger of being enslaved is for you to be fully present in your communion with God, with other people, and even yourself. Uh, for millennia now, why spiritual teachers have been trying to teach us that presence Presence is a non-negotiable for the spiritual life. To, to be simply, fully present. Uh, when you read about um, the characters in Scripture that stand out as people through whom God was doing something, you begin to see this. Moses, uh, on the run from the fact that he's murdered a man in Egypt, is out there tending to flocks one day, and he sees a bush burning. And that bush burning sort of indicates the presence of God, and then he encounters God there. And, um, and for as long as that story has been told, 
for like thousands of years now, there have been wise interpreters who have kind of come up with this riff on it, and they've said the bush was always burning. It's just that's the day he finally noticed. The bush was always burning. The presence was always there. It's just that that's the day that he finally noticed. Presence. Full presence is a non-negotiable for the spiritual life. In the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you'll see it over and over and over and over again, that even though there's all these demands pressing up against him, even though there's all these people who want more from him, he, he often withdraws to lonely places to pray. And the best definition that I have of prayer is that it's an act of presence. I've thought sometimes that if we could be like a fly on the wall, if we could eavesdrop on those moments of, with Jesus when he's in those lonely places. I imagine there would be times where we would hear like language pouring out of his mouth. He might be lamenting, he might be complaining, he might be praising, he might be honoring. But I also imagine there'd be a lot of moments where you wouldn't hear anything, but you might sense a vibration. You might sense simply that he was um, showing up fully present in that loving communion with God the Father and that from that experience of presence, he found himself sustained for all the really powerful work that he did. Now, one of the interesting things about the world that we're living in right now is that um, our empirical sciences, meaning our, our capacity to test and measure things, is starting to tell us things that um, before we only had like poetry and intuition, and now we have data about what we need and what's good for us, specifically around uh, spiritual experience or the experience of connection to God and others in a deep way. Lisa Miller is a clinical psychologist at Columbia. And clinical psychology has not always been known as a field that's like, like animated toward reinforcing religion, right? Columbia is probably not a place that's known for that either. And yet she's been doing a ton of research on this. She's written books about this and you can hear her talk about it. Uh, she describes using things like fMRIs, look at the parts of the brain that light up, when people um, are having what they would describe as an experience of God uh, in their own life or an experience of God through another person. And what they, what they find out when they study this and they kind of correlate this to other outcomes for these people is that that kind of spiritual experience correlates to an 80% reduction in addiction and suicidality. That kind of feeling of, of spiritual presence, of connection, corresponds to an 80% reduction in addiction and suicidality. She's got the receipts on this. She's got the data on this. 80% reduction. And she talks about this. I heard this on a podcast recently. She says, if you told me that there was a pill that I and all my loved ones could take that would reduce the incidence of addiction and suicidality by 80%, you couldn't stand between me and that pill, right? I would break down the door to get my hands on that thing. And yet we have the growing set of data that says that when we make ourselves available for the experience of spiritual presence, that kind of increase in well-being is documented. And I think we are starved for that experience of presence. I started out talking about the growing data that we have on what these technologies and social media platforms are doing to reduce our well-being. And now we have all this data on the capacity of spiritual experience to increase our well-being. And you have to wonder, are these two things connected? 
Is it that somehow the fragmented, distracted lives that we are living with our devices are competing with our experience of presence and that it is not good for us? Now, I thought we would make this a little more real. I did this at the nine and the energy in the room got tense. So we'll see what happens now. You don't have to do this with me, but I propose that we take a moment right now in real time and pull out our phones and we check out our screen time stats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Here's the thing, I want you to pull out your phone, but don't look it up yet, okay? If you're uh, on an iOS Apple device, you can just search screen time and you'll be able to pull it up. Don't do it yet though, don't do it yet, okay? If you're on an Android device, you're gonna look for, um, I think it's called um, well-being, uh, digital well-being is what you're looking for in your settings. Pull that up, but don't, don't look at the results yet. Just be aware that that's there. And before you look at your information, I want you to just think to yourself, uh, in the past seven days, in the past week, what, what's your bet on what your screen time daily average usage is? Just think for a moment to yourself, what's that number? What, like on an average day, how many hours do you think you spent on your phone? And then when you come up with a number, if you want to be really brave, I invite you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what your guess is. Ready? Go. Okay, now that you've done that, if you would, check the results. Uh, depending on your device, it might only show today's average. Some of those uh, are framed weekly. You might want to swipe back one week to see last week's full seven-day average. Go ahead and check out those results. I know you might have to click through for a bit and find it there. Again, on iOS devices, just search for screen time. On Android devices, look for uh, digital well-being. Oh, nice. <laughs> Good. All right, here's a question. How many of you discovered that you overestimated the amount of time that you spent on your screens in the past week? A few of you? Yeah, all right. Look at you guys. How many of you underestimated the amount of time that you spend on your screen? Okay, this happened at the nine. I observed everybody taking part in this experiment. I asked how many of you overestimated, like five hands go up. I asked how many underestimated and nobody raised a hand. Are you feeling shame right now? This is intriguing to me. I don't know what you felt and what you saw when you looked at your screen time numbers, but here, listen to this really loud and clear. If you look at those numbers or you think about your relationship with your device and you don't feel good about it, listen, listen, listen. It's not your fault. I'm serious, it's not your fault. For decades now, the smartest people in the world have been using their intelligence to engineer experiences that override your general intentionality and get you to pay more attention to these devices. Because I said it last week, you are the commodity they're selling, right? Remember, if somebody gives you something for free continuously, you are not the consumer, you're not the customer. If they give it to you for free continuously, you are something else. And in the case of social media and YouTube and all these other media feeds, you are the product. Your attention is the commodity that they are mining to sell to advertisers, which is how they make their billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now, I'm not saying everybody in Silicon Valley is evil or greedy, but 
But I'm saying these technologies exist for one reason, to make them money. And the way they make money is by getting more of your attention. It's not your fault. You are up against it. I am up against it when it comes to having the kind of relationship with these devices that's good for us with restraints built in. Let me explain a few of the ways that you're up against it. First of all, before we even get to applications, technologies, and YouTube and social media, before we even get that far, did you know that your brain, for evolutionary reasons, is drawn to screens in ways it's not drawn to other things? The theory goes that um, very, very, very long time ago in our species history, campfire was salvation in at least a couple of ways. It was um, a sign that your people were gathered and being with your people was safety, especially when you're in small groups out there in places where there are predators, right? So first of all, it's a sign that your people are gathered. Secondly, it might be heat in the cold. And third, it might provide safe food for you, right? Because we figured out at some point in our history that to cook food doesn't just make it taste good. It also gets rid of pathogens, right? So a long time ago, apparently, our brains figured out that fire equals safety. Now, fire is not... Um, there's a difference between things that are um, sort of uh, lit and things that are illuminated. So you could say that like when you're reading a book, there's light shining on it, right? But the brain can tell the difference between something that has light on it and something that has light in it. Fires have light in them, not on them, right? Make sense? The glow comes from within. And there's a number of scientists that think that the brain hasn't really differentiated between that ancient primordial attraction to fire as safety and the recognition that a screen has fire in it, has light in it, that it radiates from within, that there's something going on there. This might explain why you go out on date night and you're just doing your best to be present, but I'm sorry, that TV over the head of the person that you're hanging with just has your eyes whether you like it or not, right? Again, maybe not your fault. It may not be that you're a terrible person who struggles with being present. It may be that your brain is pretty much hardwired to look to that thing for safety. So already you've got an issue with the screen itself, but then you have the engineering of these apps. Did you know that things like comments and likes are engineered to create the same kind of dopamine surge that you get when you gamble? I'm not making this up. This is really well documented. Uh, you know how like on a lot of apps, you, you kind of swipe down and you release it, and every time you swipe down and release, something new happens, right? A little heart bubbles up, right? Or a new comment pops up, right? That's activating some of the same kind of psychological mechanisms that happen when you pull the lever on a slot machine. Um, the, uh, the fact that like, it keeps feeding you more and more, right? It's, it, uh, these apps, whether it's the way that the YouTube engine keeps feeding you more videos, or the way that Twitter or Facebook or Instagram send you more and more things to pay attention to, like there's never an end to the feed. You notice that, right? Somehow, magically, there's always more relevant social content out there for you. It's not magic. It's they know exactly the way a casino knows that they want to interrupt or they want to prevent you from having any kind of stoppage experiences. A stoppage experience is something that naturally causes you to kind of pause your consumption or your behavior. This is why casinos don't have clocks, and this is why social media just gives you continuous, continuous feed. These kind of dopamine surges uh, are really, really hard for us to resist. They're really pleasurable for the brain. The brain likes dopamine, and these things are designed to give it to you in just the right amount so that you keep coming back for more. Uh, this comes uh, from an ethicist named Tristan Harris. Tristan used to work at Google, and now he works at the Center for Humane Technology. You might know this name or face from the documentary called The Social Dilemma that came out a little while ago. Tristan Harris says it like this. The problem isn't that people lack willpower. It's that there are a thousand people on the other side of the screen whose job it is to break down the self-regulation that you have. 
So please don't feel bad about this. Like, we're not here to beat you up. This isn't like one of those preachers being like, if you just loved God more, you'd be on your devices less. No, I don't think that at all. Um, but I think, here, here's what I think. I think God loves you enough to call you to the best and most meaningful kind of life, which is one of deep presence, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of you in communion with, in encounter with God and with others and even with yourself. And there are ways that perhaps these devices can help that experience, but there's a lot of ways that they're harming it. By the way, everything I just said about how good these devices are at keeping you addicted, that's one of the reasons I'm not bothering to do a whole lot of work on like the upside of tech today. They don't need my help, right? Like none of us need sold on that. We are going to talk more about like redemptive engagement because I think that's really powerful and beautiful. We're going to do more of that in the next two weeks. Um, but you're up against it, friends. And in so many ways, uh, the quality of our lives is decreasing as the quantity of our engagement with these devices increases. And uh, it might sound like a stretch, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that when Jesus called us to this core commandment, the eternal life, the best kind of life is one where we come into our communion with God and with others and with ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of us, that that best kind of life is in danger because of our relationship with these devices. So I want to propose um, one basic practice this week. Uh, it's a way of being intentional and limiting our engagement with these devices and the media platforms that they carry. I'm not going to propose that you like throw away your phone this week. I'm not going to propose that you spend three hours a day in solitude and prayer. I'm not going to propose that we try to climb Mount Everest tomorrow. Rather, um, I want to take advantage of an insight that comes from a number of people who've been working on human relationship with technology. They observe uh, that, I use that word already, stoppages, right? Um, social media device, like these devices and apps, they try to prevent stoppages. They try to just keep you continuously hooked. But your day already has some natural stoppages built in. And the idea here is rather than like summoning the strength of will to create from scratch device-free spaces in your life, take advantage of the stoppages that are already built in. So a stoppage could be um, just the fact that you're probably going to eat dinner most days this week. And for a lot of us, that might mean sitting at a table doing that, right? Well, that's sort of an inherent stoppage that's already built into your day. What if you just seized that? What if you took advantage of that and said, we're going to make that time that already exists as its own kind of carve-out, we're going to make that time device-free, right? Another example of this might be your bedroom. Most of us, most nights, like enter into a room that's designated for sleep, right? So we have a physical space that's already designated for it, and we have a time of the day or night when we actually enter that space and go to bed. You could decide to make your bedroom device-free. Now I know, this is where the resistance starts kicking in. I hear things like, well, what if somebody needs to reach me in the middle of the night? That's super legit, that's super fair. Did you know you can buy a dumb phone? I'm serious. Did you know dumb phones still exist? Kinds that don't have like data connections and screens, like they still exist, you can still get them. You can add a line, make it your emergency number, give it to the friends and family who need to reach you in the middle of the night. You can do that. And then people kind of talk about how unrealistic that is. That's a sign that we are buying into the absurdity, right? I told you a little while ago that there's real data that shows an 80% decline in suicidality and addiction if you can create spaces that allow you to have the experience of full presence. I'm telling you, these devices are at odds with that experience of presence. If 25 bucks for an extra line on the bill and like a cheap dumb phone by your bed so that the people who love you can reach you, while you leave the other device outside the room, if it gets you there, how would that not be worth it, right? 
Um, I know people who will spend five times that much on gym memberships so that their bodies stay fit, but won't spend any of that on a kind of holistic wellness for themselves. You could do that if you wanted. Um, they say that when the system is crazy, being normal is crazy. And doing things that other people would call crazy is the only way to get to normal and healthy and well, right? Uh, stoppages. Another uh, practice. So the, the practices are take advantage of stoppages. And then also, if you need to, take advantage of tools. The good news is um, there are some tools being developed to help us have a better relationship with our technology, right? I'll tell you about one in a second here. Uh, but a friend of mine named Royce, who's a Southland City Church uh, member, he was local and now he's long distance. Uh, Royce always says, you need high-tech solutions for high-tech problems. And I think that's probably right. And we're going to say more about that in the next couple of weeks. Um, so if, if you look through your device, you might find out that whatever uh, OS you're working with, whether it's Android or or Apple, there are some tools they're starting to build in to help you kind of govern your relationship with these. But I also want to tell you about the thing that Royce is working on, because he's a member of our church, and I think it's really cool. Uh, so Royce has an app called ClearSpace, and ClearSpace can be used on your phone to interrupt your compulsive behavior opening any app on your phone. So you download ClearSpace, you do a couple of things to set it up, and then you tell ClearSpace and your phone what you want it to interrupt. In my case, it's Instagram. So on my phone, when I hit the Instagram app to open it up, Instagram doesn't open. ClearSpace opens first. And it does this kind of headspace-y meditative thing where like for 15 seconds, this really beautiful circle kind of breathes. And then it gives you a quote, something like Annie Dillard saying, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Then it says, you've attempted to open Instagram 73 times today. <laughs> or whatever the actual number is, but it gives you the actual number. And then it says, do you still want to open Instagram? And you can. That's a good tool, right? Uh, there are tools out there. ClearSpace is one. I highly recommend it. Yes, I'm biased, but he's part of our church family, and I love that they're working on it. So bring some tools alongside, right? When you realize that you are up against an enemy with an unfair advantage, use all the tools you can get, right? And then lastly, this. Savor the experience of presence. When you find yourself in the experience of presence, of heart, soul, mind, strength, when you sense that all of you as an integrated being are in the experience of presence, either with yourself or with another or with God, just savor that experience. This is important. Um, the kind of pleasure that you get from these devices, it doesn't require savoring. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a sugar hit, right? Like you don't have to, it, it just hits you really strongly. It's pretty loud, right? The goodness of presence often comes at us pretty quietly at first. It can seem kind of small or sweet at the beginning, but um, over time it, it will have a strength to it. But you got to savor it. you got to choose to recognize it's happening and like claim it for yourself. Um, savoring is really essential for these experiences. It helps us grow further into them. It helps us align our lives with them. And people who find themselves like deeply rooted in the kind of life that Jesus is talking about, I find over and over again, they haven't just been thoughtful about their practices, but they've savored the results. You know those rare moments, right? Maybe it's um, with one of your kids. And I know it's hard to get your kids to be present with you. And parents, I know you're working hard at it. But there are those moments, right, where you realize that they are with you and you are with them. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And I think you sense the kind of sustaining power of those moments, right? You have this with a loved one or a friend. Maybe you even have it with yourself in solitude. And you realize for once you're not running from yourself. You're not judging yourself. You're not divided against yourself. You're just fully there and you, you sense the goodness of that. And maybe you even experienced that with God. And I don't know if the hair is going to get raised in the back of your neck, and I don't know if you're going to have some, like, mountaintop euphoric experience. In my experience, like, the presence of God is usually experienced in a kind of quiet way, but it has a kind of sustaining power that Lisa Miller was talking about when she said the people who describe those experiences have, like, an 80% reduction in these harmful things. And I had one of those last summer, and I'll tell you about it briefly and um, the way that it's also caused me to make sense of all of this. So uh, last year, uh, thanks to the enormous generosity of our church, um, and because we try to live what we preach, uh, I was invited to take a sabbatical, a time of, of long rest. And so for three and a half months, I was fully disconnected from the work of South and City Church. And I used that time to connect with friends and family and to do some learning and to seek some inspiration. And I also used that time um, to pursue some of these experiences of presence. Right in the middle of the sabbatical, almost exactly halfway from the beginning and halfway from the end of it, uh, I had planned to go to a monastery in Northern Ireland for about a week and uh, enjoy, which is not quite the word for it, a seven-day silent retreat. Um, so I went there, and uh, as I entered the monastery, I put my phone on airplane mode, and it stayed on airplane mode for seven days. Uh, loved ones had the phone number for the monastery in case something happened, but otherwise, my phone was completely disconnected. I took my phone with me because I wanted some music, uh, and because looking at pictures proved to be a profound experience for me during that time. But my phone was turned off. Um, I would wander the grounds a little bit. Two or three times a day, I would pop into the chapel where the monks would kind of chant their, uh, their practice of the psalms there. And i got to tell you, they were not very good at singing, and it was not very inspired. <laughs> it wasn't like we were all levitating in the chapel. No, it felt very much like some old dudes in robes chanting off-key. That's kind of what it felt like. There was something beautiful about it, but it's not like Hillsong Band was like, you know, raging the anthems for me and my hands were raised, you know. Um, and I would meet with a spiritual director, but mostly it was just silence and there was nothing to distract me or take me anywhere other than where I was right there. And then one day I was sitting, I had this desk in my little bedroom there at the monastery and there's a window next to it I could look out. And I, I was doing some writing, um, not like church work writing, but writing to kind of help me process and because I love to do that. Um, and I have to tell you all, there was a moment when I was sitting at the desk writing, and um, I felt kind of overcome with a level of, uh, for lack of a better word, like presence or meaningful connection that I had not felt in years. And I found myself sort of crying in the moment. And part of why I was crying was grieving for how long it had been. And part of why I was crying was just the joy of it. And it was a really, really profound feeling of joy and belonging and groundedness and wholeness. I came home from the sabbatical, and a few months later, I began meeting with a spiritual director. And in my first meeting with him, we talked about that experience a little bit. And I think part of me was like, I would like more of that, you know. Uh, not that every day is going to feel that way, right? You can't like flip it like a switch. But I was like, I think I want more of that. And he asked me, you know, very curiously, he's like, well, why do you think that happened? Like, what do you think it was that led to that? 
And I had like three very sophisticated theories. And so I like worked them through these three very like layered and detailed theories about what was going on because I had been thinking about it for months and he just kind of said, hmm, okay. And then he moved on and we talked about other things for like the next 45 minutes. And then um, in the way that only like a good spiritual director can do, he, somehow he brought us back to it in a way that I didn't see coming. And he kind of said, man, I, I don't know that it's that sophisticated. I think you were just present. Like all the way. Heart, soul, mind, strength, every part of you was just there. There was nowhere else for you to be mentally, emotionally. Like you were just there. Maybe because you were present, you were in touch with the fact that God was present. And if God is present, then surely there is love there and joy there. Right? And I keep thinking about that. And I keep thinking now that I'm home and even having had that like wonderful, beautiful experience and having my spiritual director and having these convictions and having these concerns, I keep thinking about the fact that I still, I think my average screen time last week was six hours. Now I do some work on my phone and that's a good excuse to make me feel better when I tell you that. But um, I'm not up here having figured out most of this. I'm more like up here, I'm like an addict talking to you about sobriety, you know. Um, but I, I deeply believe that the things that Scripture is actually talking to us about, that the life that Jesus is inviting us into, the good life, the eternal life, is one where we are more capable of presence and less exploited by the pressures around us that try to draw us into their agendas where you are really just a profit engine for them. I don't think that's the good life. I don't think that's the best life for us. And so I hope we can take on some of these practices this week. Next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some big, hairy questions about AI. It'll be very exciting. Um, we're also going to explore some redemptive ways of interacting with these technologies, because I don't think they're all bad. I think if you reframe your approach, you can find that they are good advocates for the life that we want to live, but you've got to think about it, and you've got to practice it. So that's where we're going in the next few weeks. But today, um, I hope you hear that you're at this fork in the road between life and something that's less than life. And the path that takes us toward life is a path of presence, and these devices, for the most part, don't seem to be very good at it. So let's fight for presence, yeah? Cool, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? May you trust that you are worthy of the best kind of life the one that Jesus calls eternal, one that is rooted in love, meaningful connection, presence. May you hear the invitation to be in full communion, heart, soul, mind, and strength with God, with others, and even yourself. May we be vigilant about anything that would keep us from that life so that we could continue to walk in our liberation. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.